We'll be in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Have you ever seen someone do something differently than you do and wonder why? Or maybe you've done something that your friends think is strange because it's not the way that they would do it. I remember the first time I saw a friend at lunch eating a peanut butter and pickle sandwich. Anybody ever eaten a peanut butter and pickle sandwich? <laughs> I remember thinking, wow, that's really strange. <laughs> that's maybe even looks disgusting. And I let my friend know what I thought of his peanut butter and pickle sandwich. And he asked, he said, it may be strange, but I like it. Have you ever tried it? I said, no. Well, how do you know you don't like it and that it's strange if you've never tried it? So I thought, well, that's a good point. So I went home and made myself a peanut butter and pickle sandwich. I think that was the first and last time I've had a peanut butter and pickle sandwich. But it wasn't as bad as I thought, right? I mean, not something that I would want to eat on a regular basis, but hey, it wasn't as bad as I imagined it to be. I could see that someone else might like it. People having trouble accepting those who are different or do things differently. And when we encounter someone like this, we are forced to ask questions about them and about ourselves. Jesus is different. He's different from the other Jewish teachers. He has different ways of doing things. And so people start asking questions. The Pharisees want to know why Jesus isn't like them. Because they believe they are the ones who do everything right. They believe they're the ones who have figured it out. And why isn't Jesus doing what they have figured out, what they are doing? So let's read Luke 5, 33 through 39. This begins with the Pharisees from our passage last week, and they begin with a question. And they asked, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And so no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says... The old is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, our Savior, Jesus. We thank you for the newness that he brings. We pray that you'd help us to see with eyes of faith, to hear with eyes, hear with ears of faith, Lord, what Jesus is teaching us this day. 
We pray all this in his name. Amen. So we are continuing, as you might guess, our, gospel, our series in the Gospel of Luke. And last week we were in Luke chapter 5, we were in the previous few verses, in 5, 27 through 32. And Jesus had just left the place where he had healed the uh, paralyzed man, the man that his friends lowered down through the roof. Jesus had just left that place and he saw Levi. Levi was a tax collector and Jesus called Levi to follow him. And in response, Levi gives a great feast. He gives a great feast in Jesus' honor and invites all of his friends, as you might do at a great feast. You invite your friends, and his friends are tax collectors and sinners, or as Luke says in the Greek, they were super sinners, (laughs) sinners, sinners, really bad sinners. And when questioned about eating and drinking with people like this by the Pharisees, Jesus says that those who are well don't need a doctor, but it's the sick who need a doctor. And we saw that our text caused us to ask one of two questions. The first is for those who have never followed Jesus, who have maybe not come to a place in your lives where you see your need for Jesus. And the question for you that the text poses is, do you know you're sick? Do you know that you're sick in need of the healing touch of Jesus, just like the man with leprosy, just like the paralyzed man who had physical ailments? We are spiritually ill and need of Jesus' healing touch. But there's also the question for those of us who are followers of Jesus, for those of us who realized in the past that we were indeed sick, like the man with leprosy, like the paralyzed man, that we are in need of Jesus' healing touch. There's a question for us there as well. Have we forgotten what it's like to be sick? Have we forgotten our need to be healed. You see, what we need to know for the first time or what we need to never forget is that no matter how long we've followed Jesus, Jesus eats and drinks with sinners. You see, Jesus eats and drinks with sinners in fellowship with mercy. And when we have been in fellowship with Jesus and have received the mercy of Jesus, then we are to follow him and to engage in the same practices in the same way that Jesus himself welcomed us into fellowship with him. Our text today picks up in this context of the feasts. After hearing about the need of the sick to be healed, the Pharisees ask another question about fasting. They see Jesus feasting and not fasting. And this is different. This is strange. It's like my friend who ate a peanut butter and pickle sandwich. Why are you doing that? That's odd. It's different. People don't do that. What makes Jesus think he and his disciples don't need to do what we are doing, what everyone else is supposed to be doing? Why don't Jesus, what makes Jesus 
think he and his disciples don't need to fast. And Jesus will answer them. We're going to look at this answer that Jesus gives them. And it's largely around this idea that there's something new happening. New and different. Now, new and different isn't necessarily good, but it can be. And we can dismiss the new and different outright because we like the old. <laughs> We're comfortable with the old, right? I mean, many of the things that we like to wear are old things, right? It's fun to get new stuff and to dress up and to go out. But a lot of times what we, if we are looking for something comfortable to wear, it's something old, right? An old T-shirt, an old pair of jeans, an old pair of sweatpants, something old is what we often go to that's comfortable. We'll often believe the old is the only way. But Jesus brings something new. And he challenged the Pharisees and the people of his day, and he challenges us still today. And we have to ask ourselves this question that Jesus is posing to the Pharisees and to us. Are we okay with the old? Are we, or are we willing to try new and different? Are we willing to try new and different life that Jesus brings? For those of us who are followers of Jesus, maybe we've gotten comfortable in our old ways and not willing to seek the new that Jesus is calling us into. And for those of you who may not be followers of Jesus, you may be comfortable in the old as well. And Jesus is saying, are you willing to try the new life that I bring? And that's our main point from our text today is that Jesus brings new life. Jesus brings something new. He brings new life. We're going to look at that through the things that he talks about, through fasting, through feasting, and the text helps us here, and with freshness. So we get our alliteration this morning. First with fasting in verse 33. See, fasting was a common practice. And what's interesting is fasting is only commanded once in the entire Old Testament. God only commands these people to fast one day a year. You notice that in the Old Testament, most of what God commands is our feasts. <laughs> feasts surrounding the different sacrifices, but God did command one fast, and that fast was on the Day of Atonement. And its practice became widespread. Even though God only commanded on one day, the practice became widespread. And it's not that fasting is in itself bad. There are many situations where fasting was proper. For example, in Esther, the Jews mourned the genocidal edict of Xerxes, they fasted when they heard what Xerxes was going to do to the Jewish people. The prophet Joel called Israel to a repentant fast. You remember in Jonah, the people of Nineveh, Nineveh fasted when they heard that God was going to destroy the city. So fasting isn't in itself bad. God commanded it in the Day of Atonement. But what happened is that fasting became so often used, it became abused in a sense. 
Those who suppose that their fasting brought a self-achieved holiness, a, a works righteousness. And this is despite the fact that the prophets warned against using fasting in this way. Isaiah and Jeremiah both warned Israel not to use fasting in those types of ways. And by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had taken it to a whole other level. They had put fasting on steroids, so to speak. You fasted at least twice a week, according to the Pharisees. Godly people would fast twice a week on the second and fifth days, on Mondays and Thursdays. So just in case you needed to know, Mondays and Thursdays were the days that you had or are supposed to fast. They were the fasting days. Whether there was anything in your life or in the, or in the life of, of the of people of Israel that required a fast, you were to fast anyway. And for them, fasting meant a sense of mourning. Some Pharisees views it, viewed it as sacrifice, a mournful offering of one's own flesh to God that would gain God's attention. And the overall effect was that the true religion was experienced through fasting. And when fasting, the Pharisees would sometimes try to look as sad as possible. They would whiten their faces to look emaciated. They refused to wash. That's yeah, gross. And they wore their clothes in, in disarray to show that they were fasting. They believed that you could not be spiritual unless you were uncomfortable. Spirituality, they thought, consists of making yourself unhappy. And it's interesting because I think many Christians and non-Christians think of religion that way today, right? I'm not supposed to be happy. <laughs> this is serious business. And while there are certainly times for solemnness, for fasting, right? Jesus, we read just in a few chapters before, Jesus fasted in the wilderness before he went into battle with Satan and his temptation, the primary image in Scripture we have is not fasting of life with God, of life as a follower of God. The primary image that we have is feasting. Right? I just mentioned a few minutes ago that in the Old Testament, the sacrifices that you made, the, the way, the, all the different uh, events that God placed in the life of his people to help them remember his great works to help them remember their need for him there were feasts and so the primary image that we have of the christian life is a feast a, a movable feast so to speak as my friend terry tim says in his book where joy hope and love abound it is a movable feast and that is to be the image of the Christian life, and we see that in verses 34 through 35. It's not fasting that makes us spiritual. It's not fasting, it's not feasting, therefore, that makes us spiritual either, but it's not fasting that is the spiritual life of the follower of Christ, but is actually better seen in feasting. You know, fasting is the absence of table fellowship. And we talked about last week where Jesus welcomes us to the table 
It's in contrast to the fasting of John's disciples and the Pharisees, the eating and drinking. Notice the Pharisees bring that up again, the eating and drinking of Jesus' disciples. And that's the expression of joyful table fellowship. Jesus responds to their questions by saying, you can't make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them, right? The explanation that Jesus is giving is packed with a lot of meaning for the Jewish hearer and should be for us as well. Jesus is hearkening to the imagery of the prophets, that the people of Israel, that the people of God are the bride of God, and that Jesus is the Messiah, the the one who's come is picking up this imagery. And this was packed with not only that meaning, but a Jewish person hearing this would understand what Jesus is getting at in terms of the wedding feast. We've probably talked about this before, and you may have heard this before, but the wedding feast in the Jewish tradition was up to a week long, right? There was a big celebration where they ate and drank and celebrated all week together. The newly married Jewish couple, they didn't go on a honeymoon like, like we do, but they stayed home for like a week-long party. They would celebrate with all their fests and the, with all their friends, and there was continual feasting and celebrating. And the bride and groom were treated like a king and queen for the week, sometimes even wearing crowns on their heads. They had their chosen friends who were known as the guests of the bridegroom, which literally meant sons of the bridal chamber. And these wedding guests were exempted from all fasting through the rabbinical ruling. This ruling said that all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances, which would lessen their joy. And so Jesus is kind of using this imagery of, the, of, of Old Testament prophets, but also of their common practice in their culture of, of feasting and celebrating the week of the marriage and that the Pharisees themselves had given release from those who were a part of the wedding celebration from fasting for that week. Because how can you fast when you're celebrating such a joyous occasion? Jesus asserted that his presence justified a feast and that his followers had the joyous privilege of a perpetual wedding party. I mean, think about the best wedding party that you've been to. I mean, most of them just last hours in our, in our day and age. You have so much fun, right? I, mean, I won't say who because I won't, don't want to embarrass them, but one of our children at, uh, at a wedding of a family member when they were very little, danced the entire night away. The entire night. Did not leave the dance floor one minute. Danced until they literally fell down asleep. That's the kind of joy and celebration that we're talking about, that Jesus is talking about here, that when we are a part of this when he is there, when the, the bridegroom is present, it is a joyful celebration. It is a joyful celebration. 
It anticipates the messianic feast when Jesus takes his bride, the church, that we see in the book of Revelation. And the disciples are worthy of the title of wedding guests. Eating and drinking is the proper behavior at a feast. And Jesus' ministry is seen in terms of the messianic banquet. The disciples of Jesus cannot be compelled to fast. <laughs> if they are the guests at the wedding banquet, if they are, if Jesus is the bridegroom and they are the guests, they cannot be compelled to fast. They are signaling a new era of salvation. And Jesus' table fellowship reveals something about his person and his work. Not only is it a celebration, but in Jesus' table fellowship, we, in the combination of eating and drinking and teaching, it reveals the essence of the kingdom. Right? And what Jesus does reveals the essence of the kingdom. Right? We can think about the images that we see and how, we will, how this will unpack throughout the gospel of Luke and beyond, but no one broke bread like Jesus did. No one ate with sinners like Jesus did. No one taught about the kingdom of God like Jesus did. And this continues to grow throughout Luke. We continue to see it unpacked more and more about what this, about who Jesus is and what he does and who he calls his disciples to be and how to live out. And it climaxes on the road to Emmaus, right? After his resurrection, when Jesus breaks bread in Emmaus and the disciples, their eyes are open and they see him for who he is and they understand what they had not understood about the kingdom of God, about his work up until that point. And then we see it continued in the book of Acts about how the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ continues to grow in this image of the banquet of the feast of table fellowship. Jesus is with us through the Holy Spirit. And while it is at times fitting to fast, right, there are times where it is fitting for us to fast. And Jesus even says that when the bridegroom leaves, there will be times when fasting is appropriate. But the overwhelming imagery is that the church should be known as those who feast, literally and figuratively. Those who are followers of Jesus, those who are part of the body of Christ, those who are the church, we should be known as those who feast, who our lives look like a movable feast, a celebration of what God in Christ has done in our lives and for the world. We are to be those who literally feast. I mean, Jesus literally, it's not like Jesus just pretended to eat and to drink and to be a part of these lavish celebrations of what the kingdom would be like. He literally did it and actually did it. I think sometimes we as Christians can think of that as excessive. And it can be. 
But the only re- way that Jesus and his disciples got accused of eating and drinking is because they did it a lot. They participated in the great, in this banquet. And we as the church, as Christians, not only need to live our lives as those who are a part of the feast, but we should welcome people into actual feasting, actual physical reality of what the kingdom is to be like. And Jesus says this kingdom has a freshness to it. Verses 36 through 39. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, they witness what's happening and they say, the old is good. It's, it's literally like what the Israelites did when they were being brought out of Egypt by, by God through, as Moses led them by the power of God. Remember, they got out of Egypt and they started grumbling, even though God had given them all that they needed when they left Egypt, right? I mean, the Egyptians just threw stuff at them and said, take it and go. You've got all this livestock. You've got all this gold and jewelry and everything that you can carry with you. Take it and go and get out of here. (laughs) And yet they get out into the wilderness and they start wishing and dreaming of meat pots, right? Oh, we had so much better in Egypt. (laughs) The old was so much better. It's basically what the Pharisees are saying. The old is good. The old is good. But Jesus says, no, the old is not good in this case. He uses two final illustrations to introduce this singular idea in the parable the new, of the new garment and the new wine. And they have the same point, the arrival of the newness of salvation in Jesus. What is happening in the ministry of Jesus is qualitatively and radically new. It can't be added to or contained in the old. Right? I mean, when I was a kid and I would get holes in my pants, my mom would patch them. Some of you remember those, those days. Some of you are like, what? <laughs> Just get rid of the clothes and you buy new ones. My mom used to patch, particularly my knees, because that's where they, and those patches were worthless. Like, they'd last for maybe, you know, a couple weeks. But, you know, as soon as you started playing, as soon as you started, like, getting on your knees, as soon as they went through the wash a few times, the patches started to come off. And that's what Jesus said. It's, it's kind of worthless, to take a piece of new cloth and to patch it on the hole in the old garment. It's going to come off. It's not going to fit right. It doesn't look right. And then he uses the imagery of the wine. Now, humanly speaking, old wine is good, right? Jesus even says, he says no one... <laughs> who drinks old wine is going to say that new wine is good, right? No one, right? I mean, Jesus is saying the best wine is wine that has aged, the old wine. That's the good wine, humanly speaking. It's qualitatively better than new wine. 
And one who has tasted properly aged wine would never prefer new wine. I mean, if you've ever tried new wine by accident or on purpose, you know, it has a very, like, a very, almost vinegary taste. It is just really not pleasant to the palate. But Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is not normal, right? It's not what you would normally expect. The kingdom is hidden in the new wine. It's a paradox that demonstrates the radical nature of the kingdom, right? The table fellowship of Jesus is like new wine. It breaks old barriers by including sinners and tax collectors, It bears the character of a wedding feast, a a foretaste of the messianic feast in which the bridegroom is continually present. And it brings forward into the present the eschatological blessings of salvation. In order to taste the new wine, we must radically break with the past by repentance turning away from the old wine and rejecting it and coming to Jesus, coming into the new. This is the essence of what Jesus is saying here. And for Luke, this is not just a comparison in this parable between the compatibility of the old and the new, but it's between the present and the future, or the presence of the future now through the new wine and new wineskins. In the table fellowship of Jesus, not only is the new incompatible with the old, but the future blessings of the new era are brought into the here and now, presented as the new wine. Luke is probably the most clear of the gospels to express the reality of the already and not yet. That tension between what is going to happen in its fullness and what has been promised to happen and what is happening now. The new end time wine of the present age must be compatible with and stored in the new in nature wineskins of the age to come. They need to be together. Both the wine and the wineskins are from Jesus and the bringer of the new era of salvation. This is the freshness of the kingdom. It has come. And it expands and grows and it will come in its fullness. Right, This new wine that fills these wineskins and continues to grow and to ferment properly and to grow will one day be the best good wine because it has aged properly. It has become what has always been meant to be. You can't put new wine into old wineskins because they are brittle. They are inflexible. They would burst, and you'd lose both the wine and the wineskins. And Christ produces an expanding joy just like this new wine. 
The new wine of life cannot be restrained by the old unyielding structures. It is the expulsive power of a new affection that the great Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers called it. He argued carefully that only when Christ becomes the delight of the human heart will the old sinful desires begin to lose their grip over us. This new affection, our captivation with the beauty and glory of Jesus has power to expel all other loves from our hearts. This is the new wine. (laughs) Expanding and growing. When Christ fills our lives, the swelling life within it expands beyond our imagination. Christ in us, every aspect of our being, from our intellect to our emotions to our will, undergoes change. And Christ keeps increasing our capacity so we always be able to hold more of his fullness. The more we receive, the more we are able to receive. Just like new wine must be poured into new wineskins, Jesus has made us new. He pours into us His presence requires a new way, new forms and a new spirit. And even when fasting continues after the bridegroom is gone, it is different. It's a fasting with hope. It's a fasting that says, "I know that my redeemer lives." It's a fasting that says, my hope is in Christ, in Christ alone. But we, as God's people, are first and foremost people of the feast because Jesus brings new life. Fasting is not who we are. It's feasting and freshness of the new that he has given us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the new life that Jesus brings. That while there may be times to fast, Lord, you have called us to the feast. That we are people of the feast. Experience the freshness of the newness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would indeed, by the power of your Spirit, grow our affections, grow our love for you and the new life that we have in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his precious name.